This episode is brought to you by Ursa Minor Outfitters. Folks, I'm absolutely in love with my Loon mug. It's handmade. It's an absolute piece of art. Whether it's at the office or at the house, people keep asking to check it out. If you're not a Loon fan, they also have other beautiful mugs for wildlife fans of moose, bears, and eagles. They specialize in products highlighting the outdoors and local pride through quality design by local artists. They've even started expanding into items beyond mugs, like apparel, dog accessories, and soon candles and more. They also try to partner and highlight other small businesses and in some cases forgo profits in lieu of charitable giving to help their community such as the dog rescue. So check them out ursaminoroutfitters.com and enter promo code hikesmikes10 at checkout to receive 10% off your order. And for our four-legged hiking partners they also have a portable silicone dog bowl and also sweet over-the-collar dog bandana. Go check them out ursaminoroutfitters.com and don't forget to enter promo code hikesmikes10 at checkout to receive 10% off your order. Welcome everyone to the Hikes and Mikes podcast. I'm your host, Ivan, and together we'll embark on a weekly journey connecting with extraordinary hikers from all corners of the U.S. and beyond. As a warm embrace of summer envelops the Northern Hemisphere, we've had the privilege of conversing with remarkable individuals throughout this season. Their experiences and adventures will leave you yearning to hit the trails. And on today's episode, we travel down under to chat with Bort as he shares his experiences both in the States and in Australia. While we recorded this episode while he was still living in Australia, he recently moved back to the States. On Instagram, you can follow him at Dr. Bort Edwards. We talk with Bort about his travels and hikes across the states from national parks to national forests and state parks. We do some deep dives on some of the beautiful yet invasive flowering plants across the states. He also shares with us some unique bushwhacking opportunities in and around Australia, while also sharing some best practices and advice when out in drop bear country. Without further ado, let's jump into this episode with our guest, Bort. Welcome, everyone, to the latest episode of the Hikes and Mikes podcast. We're traveling internationally today. We're going to be talking with Bort. You might know him from Instagram. He has an amazing Instagram page where he not only highlights some of the hiking experiences, but also some of the plant life that he captures on the trail. Bort, thank you for joining us on the podcast. You know, one of the first questions we always like to ask our guests is how they got started hiking and how long they've been doing it for. Well, thank you for having me. It's uh, it's a privilege to be able to talk to someone who's bringing hikers together. It's really awesome. Yeah, I guess the embarrassing, I've been hiking for almost 40 years now, which sort of tells people how old I am. <laughs> I did... You don't look it, though. <laughs> Thank you, you're very kind. But I started very young. So I was hiking way before I can remember. And my parents say that they took me when I was four or five. And all I wanted to do was just hit that next corner and keep on going. And apparently I inherited the family legs to just keep on walking forever. And I think I've just never stopped. So my family were massively important in getting me outdoors. My grandparents on my mother's side were pioneers in the bushwalking and huts, so cabin sort of hiking scene in Canberra and cross-country skiing. So I think it was sort of inevitable that somehow I would get sort of dragged out into the bush. And I guess luckily I enjoyed it. And I'm going to use bushwalking 
interchangeably with hiking. Um, that's typically what we call it in Australia. All right. Yeah. A hike is usually something that's sort of more like a route march. It's kind of like a hike is something with a very determined sort of pace and direction. A bushwalk is sort of a, maybe a backpacking trip that's sort of slightly more leisurely, maybe. I don't know. I'm not okay. quite sure what the taxonomy of that really is, but... But yeah, so I've always been hiking. And then it sort of dropped off for a while. I was in scouts. Then I started a career and that took all my time. And then COVID happened. And that was an excuse to get back out and hit the trail. And I think during COVID, I hiked 73 weekends in a row, I think was, wow. yeah, it was, it was my happy place. It's always my happy place, but I needed my happy place. Yeah, like many of us did. Yeah. And you were based out of a really great central location over on the East Coast of the United States during a lot of that, right? Yeah, I was in D.C. for, well, I guess COVID is still ongoing, but for the pointy end of COVID, I was in D.C., which, <laughs> yeah, it's great access to the mountains and to the coast and and sort of get to places really well from there. It was I was really lucky. A lot of people, when they think of uh, Australia, think of Sydney and the bush. But what was the, the bushwhacking or the hiking and backpacking scene in Australia growing up? It's always been present. There's always been a lot of sort of bushwalking clubs, groups of people who go out and hike, bushwalk together. Scouts do a lot of, of hiking and bushwalking as well. And the population is quite outdoorsy. The big difference, and honestly, it's really only having lived in the US for almost a decade and coming back to Australia, realizing how vast Australia is and how untrailed it is. And so a lot of the hiking here is on fire trails. So there's massive national parks, but there's the only way to get into them is to hike along the roads, that the unfinished roads that the forestry service has cut into them. So um, a lot of the hiking is sort of beating along these fire trails and you don't quite get the same long distance foot trails that you get in the US. Um, and that is changing slowly where they're sort of their governments are sort of now making concerted efforts to build and popularize sort of multi-day footpad trails. It's really only just starting to come of age now, which is, yeah, it's kind of interesting. And, you know, I'm blanking on the name of it right now, but it's in my Netflix queue. There's been a recent movie about, I think it was a female hiker that traveled across Australia, like backpacked through it. I'm blanking on the name, but no. if I can remember it, I'll try to share it with you. <laughs> well, I mean, one of the big problems you run into doing long distance as well in Australia is water, and there just isn't any in so many parts, so much of the country. And so even if you want to hike from one side of the country to the other, or even along a mountain range, you're going to have to carry pretty much all your water with you. And that reduces how far you can go just through weight and also through days in a row and makes it really challenging, really challenging. Yeah. Oh, I imagine. And, you know, we've already touched base on on your time here in the United States and hiking. You know, being here for, for almost a decade, what were some of the memorable locations that you got to visit within the U.S.? that you got to backpack and hike in? Uh, this is going to, this sounds like a cop-out. I'm going to say that every hike is memorable because the reasons I do it are because it's memorable and I love it. And it gives me a chance to slow down and form proper memories that I've struggled to do maybe in everyday life. So, you know, hikes, I find a reason to enjoy and remember every single one that I do. And that could be even terrible weather can be memorable or boots falling apart or an amazing view. I guess if we're going to like drag a top couple or three out of me, um, I think uh, the Grand Tetons, I did three, four days with a group of people there backpacking. It was just stunningly beautiful every single step you took. It was sort of drag your drawer along the ground, beautiful. 
and the weather was fantastic. And we managed to manipulate a, a schedule of booking tent sites that just allowed us to, to do our trip. Uh, everything kind of fell into place. So that was really, really special. And it was a beautiful place to be. And I actually rated it above Glacier, which we did subsequently. And everybody says they like Glacier. I prefer Tetons. And there's a whole backcountry adjacent to Tetons that you can walk over into as well, which is, I think, as if not more beautiful in some ways. And there's not the same camping restrictions. And it gives you a whole different sort of flexibility and freedom. And I really liked that as well. It was really nice. My favorite other sort of long distance hike was last year, I did two thirds of the John Muir Trail. So from Yosemite down to Bishop, which was absolutely it's stunning. It's, again, mountains, which it's hard not to love. And as a biologist, especially the Sierras, the ecological transitions as you go up and down mountainsides or even from the eastern side to the western side of a mountain range are just so stark in the Sierras. You go from the Chaparral through the oak forest up into the sort of the sedgy country, the evergreen forest, and then the high altitude forest, and then finally up into the alpine. And you get to do all of that sometimes in like a day of hiking. It's just, it's mind blowing from a biology perspective. So that's something I'm not going to forget in a hurry. Unfortunately, saw a lot of the impact of climate change there as well. A lot of those trees that have been standing for thousands of years are dying and they've lived for thousands of years because they've survived, you know, changes before and that means that what they're seeing right now is something they've never seen before so yeah not to bring a yeah. political perspective into this but um it's changing the world we're going to be hiking through oh definitely yeah you know there's there's been talks within the pct community that they don't know if like being able to do pct from point to point will be an option in future years because of the wildfire danger yeah, yeah. we got chased by a fire while we were there and we were lucky um, got our, our hike in but it seems like being able to even with the intention of being able to go end to end at the moment it's hard to do it because the chances of getting cut off by a fire are so high and that's because the world is changing yeah there are some other places that i also love that maybe slightly less depressing i love the boundary <laughs> the boundary waters was stunning i managed to go up there for a for a few days once and that's just one of the few places that i felt you could go and feel as though there was nobody else on earth it was just you and the blueberries and the bears and that was kind of special the adirondacks for the challenge of trying to see how many mountains you can climb in a day and whether your legs will still work the next day that was pretty beautiful but then false cape which is a little national national forest on the east coast of the u.s just south of virginia beach you can camp right on the beach and that was this really special little place that sort of falls off the radar and I got to spend um, a night there that just camped on the beach under the stars and that was beautiful as well. I think my favorite place in all of the US is actually also a little sort of little known spot in the East Coast and it's called Dolly Sods and it's right on the corner of West Virginia and um, Virginia, Pennsylvania up in there. It's the highest plateau east of the Mississippi and so it has mm -hmm. a vegetation and a climate that's more like Canada than it is like the, the rest of North America and it actually shares plants it's the southern like limit of a whole lot of plants that don't occur elsewhere in the US and so going up there is like traveling you know hundreds of miles further north no matter when you go uh, she's such a moody place if she's either trying to drown you in mud or rain on you or snow or bake you but no matter what the weather it just looks absolutely stunning and it's 
probably one of my favorite places on earth would be Dolly Sods. And going through your feed, I think you captured every single season <laughs> or weather in Dolly Sods because I saw snow, I saw fall colors. It was a little bit of everything. Yeah, it's it's the extremes. And those extremes bring out that sort of that moodiness that you can kind of capture in pictures sometimes if you're lucky. Yes. I don't know if it's fog or if it's just haze, but some of the haze and fog that comes through the forest and you've been able to capture those moments pretty remarkably on your feed. So definitely appreciate it. (laughs) Well, Bart, you've mentioned, you know, you're uh, a botanist and a research scientist throughout all your travels here in the United States. What were some of your favorite wildflowers that you saw? You're really good with the horrible questions, aren't you? Um, (laughs) (laughs) This is is the cliche, you know, ask ask to choose between children. Um, (laughs) It's also hard because it's work. It can be work. And so there's a, a balance between loving something for the beauty of it and loving something because you have some sort of an intimate connection with it through sort of trying to understand how it works. I've always, I grew up as an orchid person. I I fell in love with orchids as a kid. I don't know. They're just weird, weirdly formed. They have cool pollination systems where they trap insects and tease insects and fake them out and lure them with rewards of sex that they don't give them and all these things. But then I realized that the people who study orchids are also weird, probably not coincidentally. <laughs> so I so I gave up on the idea of stu- studying them, but I still kind of love them. So... I've always tried to hunt out orchids when I've been had the opportunity in North America. So lady slippers are the sort of the obvious like big flashy flowers that as big and flashy and overdone as they can be, beautiful, beautiful flowers. And there's, I'm, I was lucky again in, in DC, um, there are some populations uh, not that far out. And so every year I would drive out and drag along some poor unsuspecting date and go groveling around trying to find these flowers and get covered in ticks. <laughs> so that... <laughs> Yeah, it's dating me is a dangerous game if you if you want to stay clean. Uh, and there's some lady slippers, some more sort of some rarer ones, the yellow and the, um, the showy lady slippers that grow in little patches. There's some in upstate New York where I spent a few years in Rochester, and I'm lucky enough to have a friendship with a land steward up there who looks after a few of these populations. So I visit them when I can. But yes, it sort of changes depending on what I'm working on at the time. So I. I worked on the Daisy family for about five years and trying to understand why there are so many damn daisies. One in 10 flowering plants in North America is in the Daisy family. It's stupidly diverse. Yeah, right? Your sunflowers and your little yellow daisies. And there's marigolds and chrysanthemums and dandelions. But then thistles are a daisy. Lettuce is a daisy. Artichokes are daisies. (laughs) Really? Yeah. Yeah. So there's, there's a whole bunch of them. And having sort of written them off as weeds before I started right there working on them, I've actually ended up coming away kind of loving them just because they are just relentlessly determined to succeed. And they are so good at doing whatever it is they're doing, at, at living where they're living and spreading and being diverse, that it's hard not to kind of just appreciate that chutzpah that they have. They're always having a show. They're always willing to put on a show. Um, and so, yeah, daisies is probably a lot of where it's at. Lupins are similar. There's, there's like 200 to 500 species of lupins. There's just bizarre numbers of lupins. And I have absolutely no idea how to tell any of them apart, which is sort of a bit of a tease to a botanist. So I kind of love them with that. 
Um, but they're also a beautiful plant. I didn't know about this, and maybe and maybe um, you can kind of give us some insight. I love lupins, but in certain places, they're an invasive species. Yeah. I don't know if it's throughout the, the whole United States. Mm-hmm. Are those some of the most evasive species that you've seen that also are some of the most beautiful <laughs> wildflowers? Cause That's probably a fair call. It's, it's tough. It, yeah. it, it really is. I mean, it's sort of part of the problem is that the reason a lot of these invasive species are invasive species is because we as humans think they're pretty and so we dig them up and move them around and then they be like, hey, this is pretty cool. I like growing here. And off they go. So yeah, there are more sort of pretty invasives than there you know, should be just because, yeah, we're good at moving stuff around. There's a really bizarre one in Australia here. It's called the Kutamundaruatl. It's endangered in its native range, but it's actually a weed outside of its native range. So where it where it naturally grows, it's struggling. But humans have taken it to other places that it couldn't have got to naturally. It couldn't get up and move there. And presumably the surrounding land wasn't suitable, so it couldn't sort of get there on its own. But when humans moved it there, it was suddenly like, Bonzo, this is great. And um, it took off. So trying to work with native natural organisms is, is really tough. You know, one of my favorite pictures that I came across on your feed, Bort, and I've always wanted to see, I think in Hawaii we had it, but we never got a chance to see it bloom, is the corpse flower. For our listeners that haven't had a chance to to see one or or know a little bit about it, can you share a little bit about the flower? And then did you also get a chance to see it bloom? Yeah, I I was really lucky. So I was working at the Smithsonian at the Natural History Museum there, and one of these flowers was blooming in the botanical gardens, which is just up the road. And my supervisor at the time realized that we didn't have a specimen of it in our collection. So uh, she coordinated with them and we collected it. So that means that we went and cut off this ridiculously large flower that can get up to sort of shoulder high. And then we sat outside on the grass in front of the Smithsonian with a bunch of scalpels and cut bits of it off so that we could uh, press it uh, and make a herbarium specimen out of it. So yeah, it was a really bizarre experience uh, in sort of collecting a plant from tropical Asia from a botanical gardens in DC and just kind of doing it, you know, with knives and you know, bits of paper out the front of a museum. It was a very strange thing. But for anybody who hasn't seen one, it sort of looks a little bit like a sort of, and I think it is a lily. And so it has a really big sort of almost skyscrapery like central spire in the middle. And that is actually the flowers. It's not one single flower. That is a whole cluster of flowers that comes together and is called an inflorescence or a spathe. And then what you see as wrapped around the outside of this big sort of skyscraper is a big glossy leaf that has sort of curled up into a a tube almost. And it looks a little bit like a petal, but it's actually a modified leaf. And then when the leaf opens and this sort of this spathe comes out from the center, all the little flowers on the spathe open up themselves and they release a really disgusting, horrid smell because they're trying to attract pollinators and the pollinators are flies and other things that like rotting meat. So the flower is pretending to be rotting meat and attracting the insects to it. Wow. Yeah. With your experience, did it smell like rotting meat? That's the really weird thing. By the time we got to it, it had kind of given up. So no, but in the process of cutting it up, and I don't know if it was the chemical, the residue of what originally was smelling on the flower or if the flower was starting to rot or had, you know, sort of bacteria growing in it. But um, my fingers stank for like two days after cutting up the flower. So I couldn't smell anything at the time. It was when I walked away, my flat, my, my fingers stank. So never quite worked that one out. <laughs> <laughs> it's a unique 
plant because the what you call it the flowering stage doesn't last that long like right if if you blink you miss it right yeah pretty much a few days if you're lucky and so it's this huge compound flower inflorescence and it takes years for an individual plant which is usually just a root underground to get the energy up to make one of these flowers and then it's all over in yeah a few days it's an impressive effort and i guess it's 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 what works for it some plants put out lots of flowers every year some put out one every 10 years that's yeah Courses for courses. Well, Port, you know, one of my favorite posts that you just shared this week or in the last couple of days, you were in the backcountry of Australia and I just caught a glimpse of it, but there is a mountain. It looked like a traditional mountain, but then the summit was like a little tip. Mm-hmm. Have you had a chance to visit that mountain? I know you, you were kind of a few miles away, but mm. have you had a chance to visit it? And as you get closer, does the, the top of it get more pronounced? <laughs> yes. You actually need ladders to climb that last little bit, which is kind of fun yeah it's called pigeon house mountain because and i profess i honestly wouldn't be able to tell you what a pigeon house looked like every day but it looks like an old style pigeon house i think to ye olde explorer it does really stand out on the sort of horizon it's sort of a a fairly triangular shaped mountain with then this sort of chunk on top a rampart on top almost um and yeah it's it's quite a local sort of icon and there is a track that goes to the top unfortunately i drove down to go hiking with a friend up a few weeks ago and they had just closed the trails for maintenance so I have not been up it recently, but I have been up in the past. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's right on the edge of the sandstone escarpments that run through that part of the country, the Blue Mountains is part of. And so so by climbing to the top, you have this beautiful bird's eye view out across the, the canyons and the, the cliff faces of the of the escarpment. And um, yeah, it's really quite special. Yeah, it looked like it was just tucked away out on its own. So I can only imagine the 360 view that you get from the top. Exactly, yeah. Or I know you've you've heard this many times, especially here in the United States when, when you were here, but everyone says everything <laughs> in Australia is trying to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. Here in the States, we do have grizzlies, we have black bears, mm-hmm. um, we have mountain lions and snakes. Mm-hmm. Personally, I'm not too hyper aware unless I'm in grizzly country, then I try to be a little bit more in tune with my surroundings. Mm-hmm. What animals in Australia have that same attention or, or um, sit in the in the front of your mind when you are bushwhacking? I guess you've, you've probably heard of drop bears. No. <laughs> so they're, they're related to koala bears, except they're carnivorous. They have really big fangs and they sit up in the trees and they wait for their prey to walk underneath and then they they drop and you know with these teeth they sort of go for the jugular and so um i'll have my passport taken away for this but that is a story we tell every american tourist when they arrive in australia we have teams of the names drop bears we have a whole souvenir industry based on drop bears sadly they don't actually exist which is (laughs) (laughs) um Oh, <laughs> I did have you going. I think I had you going. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. Because koalas are are mean when they're not in their chill state. I've heard they they can be. I mean, they're they're running on fumes almost their whole lives. Like they have a really horrible diet. They're just eating enough to survive. They're kind of probably chronically food poisoned from their own food, and all they want to do is sleep it off. And so, if you get in between a koala and where it wants to be, they can get pretty grumpy. But they're not going to go at you. It is a question I always get asked, and my my stock answer is always: I would happily take a night naked and alone in the middle of a. Australia than a night naked and alone in downtown Baltimore. <laughs> there is way more that's likely to go wrong in the middle of a city than there is in the outback of Australia or in most outbacks. 
And yeah, we have spiders and snakes, but like they're way less interested in you than you are in them. And as long as you treat them with respect, then you know, they've got absolutely no interest in doing anything like biting you. I guess I did, when moving to the US, realize that there is some sort of like cultural knowledge that you assume as an Australian. So you maybe check your shoes if you haven't worn them for a couple of days. You like tap them a few times to make sure there's no spider that's crawling. And you don't step over a log in the woods without sort of looking to see what's on the other side first, because that's where a snake is probably likely to be. Humans are the most dangerous animal in Australia. And second to that, yeah, people get bitten by snakes, but there are a few snakes that won't take every opportunity to get away from you first so it's it's not as dangerous as people think it's really not i think again i think maybe we're just telling americans that so they stay away (laughs) (laughs) well you know the one post that you kind of kind of shared on your feed that here in the united states we have one of the few venomous mammals Mm -hmm. in our woods the northern short-tailed tree can you share a little bit about it and what makes it so unique yeah it's 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 really really cool and i didn't know it existed until i was just doing some some spotlighting walking with a flashlight at night in um, north carolina and there's this little funny little mousy thing with almost no tail running along and it just kept running and running and running and I followed it with a torch and it had no interest in me and it was obviously after food and I took some pictures and looked it up later and it turned out to be this shrew and they're these bizarre little animals that just they're absolutely food obsessed and that's sort of why they are poisonous and also why they behave the way they do. They eat up to three times their weight in food a day so they're like just constantly trying to eat but that also means that they're often trying to eat things that they have no business eating like bigger things than them and so they'll go for like insects and snails and things but they'll try and eat other shrews they'll try and eat mice they'll try and eat all sorts of things and when you're a little animal that's trying to eat things that are bigger or faster than you you need to be able to stop them really quickly when you fight when you get them and so in the same way that like snakes and spiders are all trying to catch prey that are going to try and get away quickly if they don't kill them fast this shrew is trying to kill its prey really quickly and so it's developed a toxin in its saliva that will just knock out anything that it chomps down on and yeah it's i mean there are other animals that could use venom i guess but this guy's cracked it no post to humans though right like it's such a minute amount that it wouldn't do anything exactly yeah i i think it would struggle even to get its teeth through your skin but even if it did the saliva is it might feel a little not nice but it's not going to bother you no but yeah, it's really cool. And it's it's just out in people's backyards and you don't even know it's there. Now, for, um, you know, we just wrapped up our wildflower season. And right now you guys are going into winter. We're going into summer, right? Yep. What is the spring wildflower season in Australia? Because, you know, along the West Coast, especially this year with the, the winter that we had, you had some amazing super blooms, not mm-hmm. just in California, but Arizona, Utah. Do you guys experience those type of super blooms in Australia? So... The majority of us, so Australia is in the same way that the US is, is sort of divided up into a whole bunch of different ecological zones or different habitats. And they have different weather and different climates and different plants, different animals. And so we have some areas like, say, the tropics, which are sort of, there's a wet season and a dry season, but it's, it's warm pretty much all year round. So as a plant, there's less stress to go dormant over winter and then like come back in spring and get your flowers out quickly and have that spring rush. So that that kind of like spring explosion 
happens where everything's kind of had to go to sleep for winter and then it's all trying to get going again really quickly in spring and so it's a really seasonal climate that tends to drive that so the top end of australia is it has seasons but they're a bit more muted so you get flowers there sort of all year round and even down where i am in sort of the southeast of australia hiking at the moment which is winter there's still an awful lot flowering out there so you'll get a flush in spring but it's definitely more kind of more of an up and down gradually throughout the year than a big we have a bloom time in the next two weeks. What we do have is, so in the centre of Australia, which is where the, the arid, the desert is, the Mad Max kind of crazy stuff is, that has seasons, but on like year-long scales. So it'll be drought for 10 years and then rain comes. And then you have a super bloom because everything is desperately trying to flower at exactly the same time because there's still water around. That happens in kind of the centre of Australia. And that's where you'll get sort of desert that just becomes carpets of flowers. And birds will fly from across the country. We don't quite know how they know this, but they know that there's been rain and they know that these conditions are happening and they will fly thousands of miles to arrive at this, you know, these places when this happens and sort of you know, visit the flowers and pick the insects and things like that. So, yeah. But the closest we have to California would be southwest of the country, so Western Australia, which if you're looking at the map is bottom left. And mm-hmm. the climate there is actually very similar to California, to that Mediterranean climate. And it is one of the most diverse plant communities on Earth. It and part of South Africa and California are the sort of the hot spots for, for flowers in the world. And mm-hmm. so in spring there as well, you have an incredible explosion and blooming of flowers. So people definitely travel there and, and go visit that as sort of a, a super bloom kind of event. And that's something I've seen the very edges of. I got lucky enough once, but it's on my bucket list and I think it should be on anybody's bucket list to go visit that sometime. It's it's stunning. What months do you think on average mm-hmm. would they typically be blooming? Mm, September, October probably. So that being okay. being our spring. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Going into our fall. Correct. And that brings the fall season. You know, you've been along the East Coast and you got to see the beautiful fall colors from upstate New York and and the Northeast down um, through the Central East Coast. Mm -hmm. How was it seeing those fall colors um, here in the United States? And then on the flip side, does the Western part of Australia have those somewhat fall colors (laughs) or anywhere in Australia? Do you see fall colors? No, no, that is... That is that was a really striking difference. And when I first moved to the US, people were talking about fall colours and I was working in a job where I couldn't get out and see anything. And so I sort of saw street trees changing and I was like, well, this isn't particularly interesting. And it wasn't until I got the opportunity to sort of spend a bit more time outdoors that I realized, oh, this is a thing. Like this entire landscapes are changing colour and it is beautiful and and kind of humbling in a way just to see all these trees sort of moving together through this sort of this phase in their lives. That, that is definitely you know, part of my US experience that, that I have appreciated. This is because in Australia, we don't have deciduous trees. There is one mm. single tree that is a sort of traditional fall color turning tree and it grows in Tasmania. So that's where the climate is also cold. So the reason that okay. the reason that the trees are doing this is because they're dropping their leaves so that they can sort of hibernate through winter. And in the US or northern US, that makes sense. It gets snowy, you don't want to be around. But in Australia, there's not many places where that happens. And there's not enough that any trees have been able to sort of make a living by being deciduous, the benefits just aren't there. But there is a one tree uh, called Northophagus, uh, the Tasmanian beech. And it's this little sort of stumpy, or because of the conditions, is often quite a stumpy little tree. And it has lots of little sort of penny-sized leaves. 
that turn bright yellow and orange and red in the, in the fall and sort of flush the some of the mountainsides in Tasmania, these colors. And so people travel to wow. see that because that's it. That's what we got. It is interesting to see like how diverse that area is, mm. um, even though, you know, you don't have the big shifts in seasons like we do in, in the northeast mm. of the United States, but you still have your own variations down there. Yeah, definitely. And we have some mountains and it does snow, but I mean, it's winter and I'm hiking in shorts still. It's cold, but um, you don't get that brutal cold that you get sort of in, in the north of the U.S. And that changes that changes the trees. It changes the environment. It kind of reminds me of um, my time in Hawaii, Bort. I didn't understand how people wore hoodies or <laughs> jackets for the first year until I was there for like two or three years. And then the first day it got below 60 degrees. I was like, oh, it's chilly. <laughs> Like, I had to put a, a, a jacket on and a beanie, uh-huh. and it was quite the shift from, you know, being chilly in the Pacific Northwest, where some people would classify that in the 40s mm-hmm. or 30s, to then shift to, to the 50s and 60s in, in Hawaii. It's, it's amazing how we acclimatize. I, I would not have been hiking in the weather. I've been hiking in shorts here before I moved to the U.S. It's living there has definitely increased my tolerance to cold, which I don't think I'm particularly pleased with but it it has changed me (laughs) now outside of the united states and australia but you've been to some amazing international destinations Mm. can you share a few of the the highlights that you've been able to visit especially in europe some of the the backpacking trips that you've done Mm. in europe looked amazing yeah i spent some time in europe on a gap year between um college and university and so i got to spend some time sort of doodling around there and i guess it's what really struck me there is the difference in just how hard it is to get away from people and so you know sort of hiking and backpacking there is a very different experience because you sort of have to really make an effort to find a path that is you know away from towns or you make the conscious decision to hike from town to town to town which is also lovely or from pub to pub to pub which is probably more likely (laughs) (laughs) but for all that, I mean, it's it's different, but it's it's incredibly beautiful. And so, spent some time in one of the wine growing regions in France, just you know, walking across some of those hillsides. And although every part of that has been touched by people, looking out at those rows and rows of grapevines and the old sort of mansions, sort of cragging out from between them, was a very different, beautiful experience, and um, one that I will always always look back on fondly. And spent some time on the Greek islands walking around there too and again that's sort of a there's more of a stark beauty there it's it's quite sort of craggy and uh windswept in places but maybe slightly more of that sense of being able to get away from it all and i guess that's typically what i try and do when i'm hiking it's it's to get away from people so (laughs) (laughs) i think that's sort of what i sought out the place i actually got to do that the most was dartmoor in england where sort of this big expanse that a lot of people would think of as sort of being dead land or wasteland and i think that's how it's been viewed sort of for a long time because it has no agricultural value and people haven't been able to do anything with it but it's this beautiful not untouched but beautiful empty sort of chunk of the world over there and i spent a couple of days just sort of getting lost in that 
grasslands there, which was beautiful. Probably, and not to feel like name dropping, but my favorite, and I was incredibly lucky to spend three months on a little island that's between New Zealand and Antarctica called Macquarie Island, doing some research. And this island is home to one of the largest king penguin colonies in the world, and it has sea lions and elephant seals and albatrosses. And there's only 30 people on the island at any one time. Most of them are researchers. So you go for your hike and sit on a hillside and a penguin would come up and peck at your shoes to try and work out if you could eat them. And an albatross would kind of scooch by slowly on a thermal with an eye on you to try and work out what was going on. I think that was a taste of what the world was like before humans in some ways, where animals were so completely naive. And that was an incredibly special experience. That sounds amazing. Yeah. And how was the trip getting out there hmm. um, to that small little island? Yeah, so that was via icebreaker. So I had to catch a an ice-breaking ship from Hobart, which is Tasmania, which I have no idea how far it is from Sydney. And then it was three three days through what was apparently a calm sea, but that meant that you had to strap yourself into your bunk bed to stay in the bed at night. Then they packed us into some little rubber zodiacs and shoved us off onto the island. So yeah, that was a that was a pretty. And then to get back off the island, you used a helicopter. So. It was it was fun in every direction. This next question is a little tough because it depends on, on the hiker. But when it comes to your hikes, is there a regular routine that you do when you reach the summit or when you make it back out? And if not, is there a meal <laughs> that you kind of gravitate towards to? I mean, I guess it's, a, it's, it's both. And I'm a horrible cliche because it's a craft beer. So it's either a can at the top of wherever I've got to. Or it's finding the nearest brewery when I've hiked out and nothing tastes as good as that first beer after a hike. I got to ask, because here in the United States, the craft industry has exploded mm. over the last couple decades. Have you seen that type of explosion there in Australia? Yeah. And it's interesting because in line with so many other things here, we're kind of 10 to 15 years behind. So... Before I left for the US, craft beer was not a thing here. I mean, I'm sure somebody knew about it, but it was not in the cultural zeitgeist at all. Now I come back and yeah, you can buy anything you like anywhere, all the styles from a whole bunch of breweries you've never heard of, which makes me incredibly happy. But I kind of wish that when I first visited the US 12 years ago now, and I had craft beer for the first time and it blew my little mind, I had come back to Australia and gone... I need to do that here and made my fortune because it would have been absolutely right for the picking, I think. You know, one thing I wanted to ask you, Bort, is from your time in the United States and, and the pack list that you had here in the U.S., what are some key differences to the pack list that you now have in Australia? Oh, that's a great, that's a great question. The items that I have are going to be pretty much the same. The difference I sort of touched on it is water. So because your chances of being able to fill up along the route during the day, the route, are relatively slim, you have to pack a heck of a lot more water, which adds weight. But it means you have you know, maybe three or four 1.5 or 2 litre water bottles in your pack. And less likely, I don't think I've used my water filter here since I've been back backpacking, or maybe once. But again, just because you have to kind of budget for the fact that you're going to be carrying your water. Other than that, it's pretty much the same. I can get away with a, a three-season tent probably most of the year round, except right on the top of the mountains up here. And I haven't cracked out my, uh, my hand warmers or my beanie yet, but I usually carry them anyway. So, Is there one luxury item that you carry frequently on, on your trips? 
Other than beer? <laughs> that could be. Yeah, that would be a luxury. Other than beer? Uh-huh. But yeah, that is the luxury item for sure. I've sacrificed a lot of weight to carry beer before. It's, yeah, and uh, I'm not sure how I should feel about that, but it does make me happy. <laughs> yeah, I didn't realize it until just recently that I think they said water, a liter of water basically equals out to 2.2 pounds yep. uh, of weight that you yep. carry. So yeah, making that that decision to carry an extra two pounds, you know, one pound, depending on how many beers you want to have <laughs> at the summit or at your destination. Yes, yes. <laughs> Also, you could switch the metric system where a liter weighs a kilo. It's really easy. Huh? Mm, yeah. <laughs> you know, we're still in the, in, <laughs> what, what is it, imperial uh, system over here? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Struggling. <laughs> now, Bor, one question that I wanted to ask, and, you know, this is for me and, and for listeners. Besides the, the danger of drop bears, <laughs> do you have any tips or advice for folks interested in visiting Australia <laughs> and doing some hiking? Cut me off. So, I mean, I guess hammer in that you will need to carry water, and that is, you know, that is that's life. And even if there are rivers or creeks marked on a map, they're probably not going to be flowing unless it's rained really recently. So that's another thing. Just here, coming back to Australia and planning a hike, I would see a river on a map, and it's taking me a while just to realize or remember that that doesn't mean there's water. It's the sun is the other thing that is really strikingly different. So I would sit outside. I hiked for a day in the US. I hiked John Muir Trail with a cap, but not applying a heck of a lot of sunscreen. And I never got sunburnt. But the day I arrived back in Australia, I sat out in the sun having a coffee for half an hour and I had a sunburn for three days. I don't know what it is. The ozone layer is thinner. I think our atmosphere is drier and we don't have as much pollution. But for whatever reason, the sun here legitimately is is dangerous. So you, you fear the sun. And you treat it with a lot of caution and respect, I guess. Because in the same way that water is life, the sun will take that water away very quickly out of you. So you have to be aware of of the sun. Also, just the vast openness of it. So touching back to the fact that I never felt really isolated in the Northeast, certainly. The likelihood of you meeting another person on a trail in Australia, unless you're near Sydney or Melbourne or one of the big centers, is quite small. So you can easily go days without meeting another person, which is great. But it also means that you can't rely on the strangers if you need help. You can't rely on there being someone to to get you out of a a situation if you're in it. So taking some sort of an EPIRB or a a communication device is really important. Uh, And that's true of anywhere, but particularly where luck is probably not going to be bumping into somebody. But other than that, I think the main thing is it's, it's not going to be as, having said all that, it's not going to be as dangerous as you think it is. There aren't drop bears. Sadly, there are no drop bears. Um, the <laughs> snakes have way less interest in biting you than getting away. And there is a whole big country out there to explore that's not you know, Sydney and Melbourne. And we have deserts and rainforests and alpine and snow and all these things. So my tips would be to take time, take weeks. Don't come to Australia thinking you can do it in like a week. Take some time if you're lucky enough to be able to. And um, yeah, get out there. Right on. Solid advice. Thanks for sharing, Fort. Well, this has been really fun chatting with you. You know, this last little section is the this or that questions. I'm going to give you two hiking related topics and you kind of choose the one that you prefer out of the two. So the first one is, do you prefer ascending or descending? Ascending. My knees prefer ascending these days. And waterfalls or summits? Summits. Uh, Switchbacks or straight up? I'm way too pig-headed for switchbacks. Let's, yeah, we're going straight up. Track poles or freehand? Oh, I have thoughts on poles. I have a lot of thoughts about poles i don't use them and mm, no no poles nope. <laughs> I, I, I am surprised how how divisive <laughs> that one is 
I see a lot of people using polls who I think probably shouldn't be using polls or at least aren't using them properly. And I have thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> now, when it comes to your uh, footwear, do you prefer hiking boots or trail runners? Oh, that's a great question. I was boots all the way until like two years ago when I switched to trail runners. So until my ankles collapse because I don't have boots, I'm going to wear trail runners. That seems yeah. to be the direction a lot of hikers are going. I bumped into someone and we bumped into someone on the John Muir Trail and it was an older person and they looked down at our feet and were like, you're both wearing trail runners, what's going on? And, and we said, it's, they're lighter and they're more comfortable and they rolled their eyes and kept walking, but yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a divide there too. Yeah. <laughs> now, when it comes to trail systems, do you prefer a loop trail or an out and back trail? Oh God, loop trail. I don't say the same thing twice. <laughs> and when it comes to bodies of water, do you jump in or do you stay dry? Jump in. You've seen both of these, so I'm interested in seeing what your response is, but do you prefer sunsets or sunrises? It's sunsets, partly because I'm way too lazy to get up to see a sunrise. <laughs> I do like a sunset. It's usually warmer too. And this one's another tough one, but um, spring flowers or fall colors? No, it's spring flowers. Yeah, as a botanist, give me those flowers. And this last one, it's a, a decisive one, but do you tag a hike or do you not tag a hike? Yeah, that's a really tough question. And I have tagged most of my hikes, uh, but I, I think I probably should not. I think that's the more responsible thing to do, I think. But at the same time, as a scientist, I'd like to see data on whether it actually stops people going places. Probably does. Agnostic. <laughs> I think, I'm, I think I'm going to stop. I think I'm, in, I'm in, think I'm in the process of quitting. This is my last tag, I swear. <laughs> yeah, that's a tough one. You know, Bort, it's, it's been really great chatting with you and learning about your hiking experiences. For folks um, that want to follow your upcoming adventures or see some of your previous adventures, what are some of the places online that they can follow you at? Yeah, I have a Facebook page that I have ignored for about a year. So feel free to look at past pictures and be ignored there. My life is sunk way too much in Instagram. So Dr. That's D-R Bort, B-O-R-T Edwards uh, is my handle. And I you know, love chatting to people there about hikes and nature and the science and things. So um, yeah, that's the way I connect with people these days, I guess. And we'll be sure to link those in the episode show notes um, so people can follow oh. along. Well, Bort, it's been really great chatting with you and I'm looking forward to seeing what your next adventures bring. And thank you so much for, for joining me on, on the podcast today. No, thank you. The pleasure is absolutely all mine. And it's been really, really fun listening to the backlog of podcasts just because it gives an insight into all the people that I see on the trail but don't get to like talk to necessarily. So um, it's a really cool way to understand what the other people I'm sharing the trail with are doing and thinking. Oh, that's a good yeah. way uh, of looking at it. I appreciate it that. Cheers, thank you. And that brings us to the end of this episode alongside Bort. We extend a heartfelt thanks to him for coming on the podcast. Make sure to stay connected and follow his upcoming U.S. adventures on Instagram at Dr. Bort Edwards. We have an incredible lineup of episodes planned throughout the summer, and we can't wait to share them with you. New episodes will be dropping every Monday, with occasional bonus episodes on Friday. To ensure you never miss out on any thrilling tales, remember to hit the like and subscribe button. Your support means the world to us. Don't forget to join our vibrant community on Instagram, at Hikes and Mikes. We'll be sharing episode visuals, my own personal hiking content, and so much more. Let's stay connected and continue to inspire each other on this remarkable journey. As we bid farewell, remember to tread those happy trails, embrace the great outdoors, and keep the spirit of adventure alive. Until next time, my fellow explorers, happy hiking. A special shout out goes to our incredible audio editor, Alex, whose exceptional skills and dedication help bring each and every episode to life week after week. Thank you, Alex, for your invaluable contribution to the Hikes and Mike 
next podcast. This episode's music was created by Ketza. Follow him on Instagram at Ketza Music. This episode is brought to you by Flip Socks. Whether you're on the trail, on the job, or in the yard, Flip Socks will keep Mother Nature out of your boots with their innovative nylon sleeve. You no longer need to worry about any annoying debris getting trapped in your boots during your hikes. Simply flip down the nylon sleeve over any boot to prevent Mother Nature from finding its way inside, keeping your feet comfortable all day long. To get your first pair, visit flipsockswithaz.com and enter promo code HIKESMIKES10 at checkout to receive 10% off your order. And for listeners who use the promo code at checkout, I'll be donating 100% of the Season 2 promo code proceeds to Big City Mountaineers, who provide transformative experiences through connections to nature that strengthen life skills and build community for youth and disinvested communities across the nation. So if you're tired of bits and pieces of the trail finding its way into your hiking boots, pick up a pair of flip socks today with the promo code HIKESMIKES10 to get 10% off. For website and promo code, See the episode description.